Welcome everyone to another brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. And in this episode, this is something that once again, I have never discussed or encountered or had the opportunity to speak with someone of this caliber or of this kind of experience. Um, in this episode, we are talking politics and we're getting to that highest level of what I consider to be uh, healthcare, which is the political level. Because at the political level, you influence things all the way downstream to what I, as a practicing physician, will do. So this will be a really interesting uh, conversation to get into. Our guest this week is Dr. Abdul El-Sayad, who is a MD, PhD. He is a absolutely brilliant guy. If you guys want, just Google him. He is someone who actually has a Wikipedia page. Yes, he is only 40-ish, I believe, and he has a Wikipedia page. Absolutely incredible. Um, as just some brief highlights, he first went to med school at the University of Michigan, did two years, decided that he's going to take a Rhodes Scholarship and go over to Oxford, got a PhD in epidemiology, came back, finished med school at Columbia, decided not to do a residency, um, ended up becoming a health officer and executive director of the Detroit Health Department at just 30 years old in 2015. Um, he realized there was so much more to public health at some point, decided to run for governor of uh, Michigan, unfortunately did not win that campaign, but has since been very involved at the political level within the public health space. There's so much to him that this person has done. Um, he's also authored two books, uh, Healing Politics, A Doctor's Journey into the Heart of Our Political Epidemic, as well as Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. He's also host of a podcast, America Dissected, and he is now a political contributor at CNN as well. Whew, that was a mouthful. He has done a lot, but I recommend what you do is go over and read his Wikipedia page because everything is there. Go check him out. Go check out his website. This man has done a lot and I'm excited to be talking with him. So let's get into it. Overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. And in today's episode, as you can tell by the introduction that you just heard, that this is a very impressive individual. He is someone that has gone through health at kind of all different stages. He's experienced it from kind of the bedside with his uh, degree as a doctor, as a physician. He's experienced it from different levels, such as a health officer for a state and for a city. And he's also experienced it from a political level. And that's absolutely why I'm so excited to have Dr. Abdul El-Sayed on this podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here with you. So my first question for you is I kind of briefly mentioned writing this and then in the introduction, the guests, you won't hear this because it'll be like five minutes of an introduction, but the guests know a lot about you at this point. You've held a lot of roles and have done many things. What kind of drives you to do all these things? What is the commonality between all of them? So I'll tell you, uh, for me, a lot of my career path was informed by my own childhood growing up in Michigan. I'm uh, the, the eldest son of uh, my father, who's an immigrant from Alexandria, Egypt, and my stepmom, Jackie, who's a daughter of the American Revolution. And um, I spent a lot of my summers in Egypt where I'd hang out with my, my family who come from a really, really tough working class 
background and some of the poverty that some of my family grew up in, um, it, uh, it, it forced me to think a lot about the contrast between my own experiences and theirs. And my grandmother, uh, who's the wisest, most intelligent person I ever met, but never got to go to school. Uh, she had eight kids, um, and two of them died before the age of one. So she had a personal infant mortality rate of 25%. And I didn't have the language to talk about it at the time, but every time I'd go to Egypt, it'd take me about 15 hours to get there, usually stopping over in Amsterdam. And uh, I travel about 10 years difference in life expectancy. But the craziest part of it is I didn't even have to go to Egypt to go 10 years difference. I could go 15 minutes to the city of Detroit and travel the same life expectancy gap. And so that, that forced me to really think a lot about the ways that privilege shaped my life, but then also the ways that the lack of privilege and uh, things like racism and colonialism took away life literally from people I, I, I love but never got to know and my aunt and uncle. And, um, and it, it really focused me and sharpened my thinking about what I really wanted to do. And I realized I wanted to be a part of solving that problem. So that's why I became a doctor. Um, in, in so many ways, though, I was really frustrated by the system I was going to have to practice in, realizing that, in, unfortunately, in the United States, we are a society where medicine is, is not um, usually the kind of tool that can solve those inequities. Unfortunately, it has become, in so many ways, one of the tools that uh, expands them. And so I decided I wanted to be the kind of doctor who worked on the system rather than in the system. Uh, and um, that led me to a career in first in epidemiology, studying health disparities. I got really frustrated with how far away that felt from the problems I wanted to solve, um, which led me to public service as a as a health director. One thing led to another, and it was just sort of a job that fell in my lap. And um, that was really the first time in my career I felt like the things that I did every day were actually working against the challenges that I'd said I wanted to solve, whether it was building programs to make sure kids had glasses or taking on some of the biggest polluters in the state or uh, making sure that kids weren't exposed to lead in their schools. Th these were all projects that I could point to and say, we're doing something about this gap. Not enough, not fast enough. And certainly um, uh, we are we are only a drop in the bucket, but it is, it is something toward that end. Um, ultimately led to running for office uh, because I just got frustrated with the fact that um, too often, our politics don't center the, the kind of folks that I wanted to center in our work. And I thought that, um, you know, as governor, I, I might be able to do something about that. I didn't win my race, but since I've spent most of my time um, trying to, to, to make an intervention on the public narrative, just like this podcast, uh, to move our conversation about what's possible, about why our problems exist so deeply, and about the fact that there are things that we can do about that if we are willing to work together to do them. That is a very sobering kind of journey that you've had through getting to where you are now. Um, I know there's lots of people at various stages, whether you're the physician, you are someone who is at, at the epidemiological level or you're in politics. People are frustrated at every level. I think through this podcast, speaking to so many guests, I've learned about their frustrations at all these different levels. Um, I'm excited to learn a little bit more about yours. What are some of the things that you're actively working on right now? So I host a I also host a podcast called America Dissected, um, which will be plugged by the way. So go listen to it. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, we um, we we talk about the intersection between health and society, and um, you know that is that is one piece of the uh, of of my work. I write a newsletter called The Incision, uh, which is more political. Um, I also comment at CNN, and then I teach at uh, the School of Public Policy at Michigan. Um, and so between the that work and then a couple of books that I've I've recently written. 
most of my work has been at that intersection between policy, politics, uh, public health, and, and media, um, and all of them trying to think about what are the habits of mind or of politics or of policy that lead us to um, an America where we are less healthy than we can be, um, and also an America where we're less uh, unified um, and less focused on the needs of uh, of the most vulnerable uh, than we ought to be. Um, and then a lot of my work in, in, in political commentary is about what does that space between progressive politics and um, serious, rigorous policy intervention look like? Um, and how do we uh, develop that? So, you know, as our country turns uh, toward a more collective sense of what is possible, that we have the rigorous policy that we need to be able to, to actually animate that. Given all your experiences and being currently situated between that intersection of uh, that public health, that policy and the media, I'd be very interested to understand your definition of preventive medicine, because no matter who you ask, it's slightly different. And I think based on people's experiences, that definition changes pretty drastically. So what do you consider to be preventive or preventative medicine? Well, let's talk about prevention first, and then let's think a little bit about how medicine plays in there. I think the the work of prevention is about uh, everything that we do uh, at all the levels of potential intervention, whether it's um, environmental or societal uh, or cultural or individual um, that can uh, forego uh, or delay a uh, outcome uh, of illness uh, in an individual and then seeding up to populations. I think um, the role of medicine is interesting because you know medicine is the art and science of diagnosing and treating disease in individuals, as contrasted to public health, which is what we as a society do collectively to assure conditions for people to be healthy. And so I'd say that you know preventive medicine um, usually tends to pick up where public health leaves off, so it tends to focus more on um, the kind of uh, opportunities toward prevention as we defined it. Um, that focus on interventions at the individual uh, or cultural level, um, as opposed to a lot more of the structural work that I think is the work of public health. There's obviously a gigantic uh, point of intersection between the, the work. I would argue that they're more of a Venn diagram where the circles are, are pushed together pretty, um, pretty tightly. But um, uh, I think it tends to be more focused on the kind of work um, and, and the kind of uh, advice that can be given to an individual or a family uh, about improving outcomes. Definitely. I think that's a very interesting definition. I like how you separate those two out. A lot of people, myself included, kind of lop it all together into medicine because I think there's so much more physicians can do as well um, from a public health standpoint and just expanding the definition of medicine, quote unquote, to instead of just being pharmaceuticals and all these interventions to incorporating larger parts like the environment policy, whatever you have it. Um, the rest of this podcast, I'm going to ask you kind of progressively through your career, you've experienced different levels of what kind of you can do your capabilities of impacting and improving people's health. So we're going to start off as kind of the difference between a physician. Um, I know you didn't do a residency, you decided that you had larger things in mind. Um, but even as a medical student, you definitely had some experiences. So what are kind of the differences and responsibilities of someone who is a health official for a state or city versus someone who is a practicing physician? I think most of it is about who you're accountable to. Uh, if you're a public health official, you're accountable to the collective, to the community. And 
um, less so to any one individual. Uh, your job is also, in some respects, to help inform public policy and then to enforce public policy um, as it comes to, to, to public health. As a physician, your responsibility, your accountability is to the individual who is your patient um, and, uh, and, and in some respects, their, their family. That is not to say that physicians can't be really critical practitioners of public health and public health policy. Um, and inform public health and public health policy. But that is to say, just it's the locus of accountability that I think makes the biggest difference. One of the questions I've always struggled with internally in my mind is as a physician, you can impact the person in front of you. And and, uh, depending on the size of your practice, whether you're working as like an inpatient uh, physician or an outpatient practice, you'll impact your specific patient population. How much difference or how much bigger of an impact does a health official have if they have one? Is that something that can be quantified? Because every time in my mind, I'm thinking, should I eventually do something where I'm a health official where you can impact a larger quantity of people? You know, I'll tell you, I don't know that we ought to even um, engage in this sort of impact assessment and comparison because Mm -hmm. I just don't. I don't know how that you how you quantify depth, right? Breadth is easy to quantify. You can say mm-hmm. this is how many people my work touches. Fine, that's that's fine. But there's clearly a trade off in terms of the depth of the way that an individual's clinician touches them versus a, a nameless, faceless public health official that they may never know, right? So I, I think that um, I think that sometimes um, really ambitious, very evidence driven young people, the kind who tend to become physicians tend to want to, um, to, to, to pursue an impact. And I think that's laudable. What I also worry about is that we tend to have a bias toward the thing that we can count. And so I think that we tend to assume that more is, is better. And I don't know that that's entirely true. I, I think that you can have a really great impact as a clinician and you can have a really great impact um, as a, a public health official. I think that one ought to try and pursue both. I think that great public health officials tend to be really good listeners to individuals. They tend to try and touch the folks that they're um, really trying to work with, uh, and they um, are really thoughtful about how those individual experiences scale to the general to be able to uh, address and, and help to improve health policy. I think that clinicians should also be in the work of um, trying to ask, how do we bend uh, a lot of the societal, environmental, cultural forces that uh, my patients swim in every single day? to make sure that my patient is healthier tomorrow than I individually um, can help them be. So I don't know that they're mutually exclusive, but I do know that um, one can get, it's, it's somewhat crazy making um, to try and uh, try and count these things. Mm-hmm. And I think one should probably rather ask, what is the thing that I do best? And for me, um, it was really quite clear uh, that the thing that I do best is I communicate and I lead well. Um, I have many other deficiencies as a human being, but those are two things that I think I do I do rather well. Um, and so I found myself moving in that direction. Um, I I uh, also watched in awe um, as some of my my clinical colleagues in medical school were just they were just better clinicians than I was. Um, whether it was because they were more focused on it, whether it was because they, their their mind tended to work um, that way. Um, they, they were, they were just better clinicians and I, I'm so glad that they're out there doing clinical work. So I would ask rather than what is the biggest impact and how do I measure myself according to that? I'd ask what 
is it that I enjoy doing best? And what is it, where is it that I can have the greatest multiplicative uh, impact because I find so much joy in the doing toward the end of um, trying to make a, a healthier community? And if that is, you know, public leadership or communication or uh, policymaking or operations, great. And if that is uh, individual um, uh, uh, clinical care, uh, and, um, and, and, and working one by one with patients, that's great too. Um, but, but I think the comparison is, it's uncertain at best and, um, and the crazy making at worst. Sure. Um, I like how you kind of differentiated those two right there. That's a great differentiation to make. I'll probably make a clip out of that. But um, I want to ask you a little bit. You mentioned accountability and what those different roles are accountable to and who they're accountable to. And you mentioned that physicians are accountable to the patients in front of them and to their patient population. Um, from my perspective as a practicing physician, you are still accountable a little bit to kind of that health official because they set some policies or some sort of uh, for whatever hospitals can practice in a little bit of the scope of what physicians can do within their practice. And one of the problems that I see within America myself um, is kind of this compartmentalization and fragmentation of these different aspects of what should be a seamless ladder. From your perspective as a health official, how much interaction or how much intersection is there actually between frontline practicing physicians and those health officials? And do you think that's something that can be improved? And if like they were to be improved, then do you think health would get better? That's a that's a really good point, and probably not enough. Um, and I think if they were to be improved, things could get better. I also think that um, sometimes the two don't appreciate where the other is coming from. I've had many conversations with my clinical colleagues who say, "Well, uh, your job is to make my job easier." Like, no, my job is not to make your job easier. My job is to make sure that our patients are 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 the most well. And the other problem is is that. Too often, clinicians define their job based on how much money is made at the end of the day rather than how well their patients are at the end of the day. And so I think there, there are two points of sort of central confusion that tend to leave us um, maybe talking against each other. And it's not to say, I, I think most doctors go out there and say, I want to provide great clinical care. But I also think that sometimes we ignore the fact that our entire healthcare system is built around trying to monetize the illness of people rather than trying to make sure that they are as healthy as they possibly can be. And just to be clear about, about why that is decidedly true is that if you think about, you know, if you were to, to reduce the entire healthcare system simply to the incentives of a single doctor, um, that doctor makes more money when people get sick and then get treated rather than when people never get sick in the first place. And so there is a, um, a trade-off there that I think we all ought to be really thoughtful about and engage with. And I think it, makes, it takes more doctors thinking bigger picture about the way that our system works and the, their role in it. Um, you know, I, I know uh, this is maybe a departure from the intent of the question here, but I also think that doctors need to decide that we are going to raise our voices far louder in the healthcare system than we often have. I, I think that the single most promising movement in healthcare right now is physician organizing um, and the will to stand up and raise a collective physician voice against the increasing incursion of um, healthcare corporations on the way we practice medicine uh, and on the, the rights, privileges, and autonomy of physicians and patients collectively. So um, I, I think that there's a space here where um, there needs to be better crosstalk, but I also think that in some respects, Part of that crosstalk can be sullied by the misplaced incentives of the healthcare system writ large and sometimes some clinicians working inside of it.
We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventivemedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. I absolutely agree with that. I could probably talk at length about physicians needing to have a stronger voice instead of getting pushed around. Um, um, we're not going to go there in the interest of time. I want to move on a little bit. You mentioned those financial incentives and kind of how healthcare policy is formed to kind of push those incentives more so with insurance companies and all this kind of stuff going on. I know you have a book uh, titled Medicare, essentially how we make it work in America. So I know kind of a little bit about your background. I haven't read that book yet. I'm working on the other one. I have a little, a little slow time on that, but um, you decided to run for governor of Michigan. Um, what frustrated you with kind of the aspects of being a health officer? Why did you decide to run for governor? And how does that change your role within the health of other people as a governor? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I loved my job as, as a health director, uh, and I would gladly um, you know, do that job again someday. But I will say that so often the incentives of our politics are moved by the incentives of big corporations that can write big checks. And um, that is a central problem to the way that our politics engages with healthcare because, well, the single biggest contributor uh, to all lobbying in America is the pharmaceutical industry. Number two is the insurance industry. Number eight is the hospital industry. So um, these industrial players they move our politics in, in pretty profound ways, in very dangerous ways. And uh, I found so often that I was running up against those incentives and I got really frustrated and said, well, look, I, I think that there's a world where our politicians don't have to be beholden to these corporations. And I also think there's a world uh, where we as physicians um, decide that we're going to take our stake in, um, in, in American leadership. And so one of the biggest issues I ran on was single-payer healthcare, or, or what we call at the federal level, Medicare for all. Um, one of the issues I ran up against, whether it was uh, when I ran or um, even when I was working as a surrogate for uh, then-candidate Bernie Sanders, um, was that people don't understand um, how our healthcare system works in the first place. But second, you know, what we're talking about when we talk about Medicare for all. And then third, a lot of the chattering class, um, you know, political pundits don't take the idea seriously simply because, well, this is the only system they've ever seen work because it's the only one we've ever had, despite the fact that we are decidedly an anomaly internationally. So uh, I decided to, to sit down with um, my friend and colleague, Dr. Micah Johnson, and we said, you know what, we're going to write a book about Medicare for all. It's going to be called Medicare for All, a Citizen's Guide, and we are going to publish it with the most prestigious uh, uh, publishing house in the world, Oxford University Press. And then, um, you know, folks can't really justifiably say that it's not a serious idea anymore, right? Um, and so that's what we set out to do. But stepping back, right? Stepping back, the thing that I think physicians have to understand is that um, is power. And how does power work? Where does power come from? Uh, who gets to set the rules and why? And I think sometimes we're, you know, doctors are really good. We're, we're very good at following protocol and we're not very good at questioning <laughs> protocol. And I really um, would love uh, our physician colleagues to be a little bit more willing to question protocol. Why is it the way it is? Um, and who gets to decide? And is that in the best interest of patients themselves or even providers? Um, and what would, why, if, if, if not, why is that the case? And then what can we do about it? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, as far as what a governor can do in terms of healthcare reform for their constituents, what can they actually do? Because I know a lot of times, obviously, you have a background as a physician and as someone who understands all these different health concepts. But let's say there's another governor who comes from like a financial background. They just have an MBA, all those kinds of things. What impact can a governor actually have on their constituents? And how can we make sure that they actually promote the health? Because in your book, at some point, you write that health is essentially the groundwork for the rest of our lives, which I wholeheartedly agree with. I've been saying almost every episode. So governor has a large responsibility to some extent. Um, what is that responsibility and how does it manifest? Yeah, it depends on the circumstances in which they're elected. It depends on whether or not they have um, a legislature that that shares their perspective or not. If you do, um, you know, you can lead uh, a fundamental reform of, of the healthcare system from that office for your state. Um, if you don't have the backing of your legislature, there's still a lot that you can do inside the 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 the, the work of of government. Every single um, state government runs a Medicaid program. That Medicaid program, um, whether it's you know actively discriminates against people or it doesn't, whether it provides certain services or it doesn't, that's a function of legislation, sure, but it's also a function of operations. And I think a governor has a lot to do there. Then it's all those things that aren't directly health care. It's public health, right? Every single mm -hmm. state has a public health department and a human services department. Are we willing to take on challenges of housing or uh, environmental pollution or uh, or access to, to, to healthy food or walkable communities or not? Um, and all of those things shape health pretty profoundly. And so there's just Definitely. a lot that a governor can do if you are willing to sort of step back and say, what if we ran this? building upon the central question of what makes folks the most well, physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally well. And I think we'd, we'd end up with a government that looked very, very different than the one we have now. I want to zoom out a little bit even more now. So we're looking at kind of the state level gubernatorial races. And I want to ask you, since you are kind of connected in these, obviously have way more insight into this than I do of the state of healthcare reform within the United States as a whole. I know in California, they had kind of Medicare for all or single payer healthcare on the table in a majority progressive state, and it still did not pass. So if that is the case in a state that is like 100%, we are progressive, then what does it look like? Are we ever going to get healthcare reform? You know, it never went to a vote. That was the it, that exactly, was the and the reason it never went to a vote is because of the power of this lobby. Um, I think we are going to get there, and I think the reason we're going to get there is because people are going to demand it. And I think the reason people are going to demand it is because they're watching as we are uh, marching ourselves into an increasingly untenable situation. The uh, average family of four earns about seventy to eighty thousand dollars, depending upon where you live, and. Um, that's not a lot of money. But then you think about the fact that the average deductible for that family of four, if they're getting health insurance from their employer, is about $3,600. You realize that this family is being asked to forego an entire paycheck, even though every single paycheck is being garnished for healthcare. And that's just going up. It's going up. It's going up. It's going up. Every single year, it's going up. And it's going up dramatically. And so we're going to get to a point now where being insured doesn't mean anything because if the operative word in insurance is sure, you can't really be sure that you're <laughs> going to be financially stable if you get sick when you have to lose an entire paycheck just to pay for the health care that you thought you already paid for. So I think that we're going to start seeing people get more and more and more frustrated. You know, in the past, a lot of the, the fight for universal health coverage at minimum or single payer at maximum has been uh, one that has been focused about the plight of the uninsured or the poor. 
but that's actually a misnomer nowadays because insurance doesn't mean anything anymore. So I think that you're going to start seeing more and more public pressure, but when, and when it comes, it's not going to come in a trickle, right? It's, it's going to come in a, uh, in a torrent. Um, but you know, my, my hope is that we keep, we keep showing people what's actually happening. Um, we keep demonstrating exactly why it is that healthcare is so expensive, um, that it's not redounding to their well-being. that there are so many people, uh, who have it even worse um, and that there's something we can do about it. And I believe deeply that, you know, in our lifetime, something's got to give. Uh, and I, I think folks are going to step up and demand the healthcare system that we need and deserve in this country. As a follow-up question to that, um, you talked about kind of how there will be this torrent of people wanting and kind of demanding this better healthcare and better access to healthcare and all these different kinds of things. But equally on the other side, there's these politicians who are, it seems like they're just waiting, quote unquote, for this torrent to come. The, at that point, it'll be undeniable. Do politicians at that level, I'm sure, once again, you have much more experience than me. Um, do politicians at that level understand the plight currently of a lot of these regular citizens? I'm sure that like the person walking on right here doesn't think that their local um, governor or senator or even president knows about their health situation. Is this something that's known or do politicians just not know what's going on? They know. Um, they're just afraid of speaking up. I mean, I think that's it. <laughs> the health insurance industry, like I said, is the single biggest contributor to political lobbying and electioneering. And they worry that if they step up and speak up, they're going to get pounded um, in their next re-election campaign. And most of them have been taking the money from those corporations in the first place. So they know, they see, and they say the same talking points, but they're not all that serious about action. I mean, I hate to say it. Think about California, right? All these people had 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 spoken mm -hmm. the right, said all the right things, and then when it actually came time to do something about it, right? They did. They couldn't even bring it to a vote because they're so worried about what would happen. So we need politicians, not just who know and understand, but have the courage to step up and do something about it. But the other bigger part of it is, you know, in, in our book we have a whole chapter called "Organizing versus Advertising." The, the way that these corporations work is that they run thirty-second ads. Anybody who lives in a uh, a a um, battleground state has seen, you know, the torrent of ads that you get uh, during election season. That's how they work. They, they buy ad space on television to tell you why passing Medicare for all is going to take away your choice. It's going to cost you too much. It's going to eliminate jobs. These are all the talking points that they keep saying, right? What they don't tell you, of course, is that you're going to end up saving money. You're going to have a choice of doctors uh, that, that, that you want to see and that um, in the end, you'll never lose your health insurance again. Um, and, and so, uh, our job is to organize past that. It's going to be people coming together, having conversations with one another about what is possible that drives our politics. I hate to say it. Most, there are some politicians who truly step up and lead. That's why they do the job. Most politicians don't have that kind of courage. Most politicians, they say, you know, movements create change and then politicians show up to cut the ribbon. Um, so, you know, we got to move our politicians there and we have to make them more afraid of what the people are going to do if they do not act than they are of what the corporations are going to do if they do. One of the issues that I see standing in the face of this is even if politicians are, let's say, they're aligned with uh, single-payer systems, they're aligned for removing lead from the water systems, they're aligned for all these different kinds of things, but the votes just don't happen, it doesn't pass, people get discouraged. They say, oh, I voiced my opinion, nothing happened, so there's no point voting anymore. And that's why I believe you see a lot of these things never progress because the people who have that large voice, it doesn't get there, and then they fall by the wayside, and then you wait for the new swell, and it's just a rising tide. Is there any solution to that? That's what they want 
they, they want us to believe that we cannot succeed, right? They, they win <laughs> not when they beat you. They win when you stop trying. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, I, I know that there's going to be uh, folks listening to this and our job is to make sure that we don't stop trying. And one way to think about it is, right, it's that, it's that uh, you know, it's the tortoise and the hare, right? Uh, obviously, everybody who needs healthcare needs it now, needs it today. Um, but uh, they want to tell us that we should stop trying on their behalf. But our job is to keep on coming, to keep on pounding, to keep um, building momentum, driving. They're going to win um, until they lose. And our job is to believe in that world. And don't forget, history is rife with examples. Medicare itself uh, failed and failed and failed until the until it finally passed. And um, Medicare for all will fail and fail and fail until it finally passes. And um, And we've got to keep working for that day. I would love to keep talking to you for like hours because there's so many different questions because I've never had access to ask someone who is versed in these kinds of things, these different questions. But in the interest of time, we're moving to our last question, which is our classic for this podcast, which is um, if someone, let's say you're at a Starbucks or a Pete's Coffee, wherever you get your coffee or a local shop and someone asks, someone recognizes you, they ask, how do I get healthy? What do you tell them in that two minutes you're waiting for your coffee? And number two, moving your body in a way that gives you joy. If you could do that, if you could trade the time that you spend uh, scrolling through Twitter, in my case, or watching TikTok or Instagram Reels, and you could trade it for meaningful physical activity that gives you joy and meaningful time with people you love, you, you, your life will be a lot have, will be a lot healthier. That is very well said. This episode flew by way too quickly. I felt like we just sat down and started talking. Um, all of your information, all of your books, all of your podcast links, everything will already be there and all the links will be in the bottom. But is there anywhere you want our listeners to find you specifically? Um, I hope folks will check out the podcast, America Dissected, um, you know, wherever you get your podcast. Obviously, after you listen to this amazing podcast and you know, <laughs> load that one up in the queue. Um, and I, I, I hope folks will check out um, either or both of the two books, Healing Politics and Medicare for All. I think, you know, we don't um, spend enough time with books, uh, but they're, you know, as someone who's sort of communicated across multiple media, the ones that people take the most care in and that where you get the most nuanced, thoughtful uh, engagement with someone tends to be books. So, um, so I hope folks will check them out. Well, I can vouch for that. I'm halfway through one of the books. Um, I've just blanked on the title. I don't know why. Uh, Healing Politics. Sorry. Halfway through it. Haven't finished yet. Can vouch for that. Um, Dr. El Sayad, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I hope you enjoyed your time. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Honored to be here. Um, hope that we get to cross paths again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us spread the message of prevention, first off, rate and review this podcast. Second off, you can find our content on our social media platforms at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next one.